a word to the wise. We, Crossland and I, are an explicit podcast. And by Crossland and I, I mean words and whiskey. And by we, I mean this. Tackling content with adult themes as well as entering spoiler territory if you aren't caught up with us. That point this week is through chapter 43 of The Lost Metal. The seventh full entry into the cop, not the Cosmere. I say that every fucking time I'm wrong. <laughs> of the Mistborn saga, the fourth book of Era Two. Yep, yep. That's it. That's the. That's the warning. there this is cross <laughs> and i'm pj and we are words and whiskey a podcast for veteran and novice readers like we tackle fiction novels and love to talk about what we're drinking you should think of us as your intoxicating weekly book club i can't be held down crossland i can't be contained to the same old tired paragraph that we have written out and have had <laughs> standard for the entirety of these 130 something podcasts that's not true. We did have a different paragraph to <laughs> begin true. with, and we shifted it, I want to say, between Golden Sun and Morningstar. We finally changed it and cleaned it up. Yeah. It feels right. It's It feels like it was right around there. Something like that. Something like that. But, yeah. Because we had something different that was not as clean, that was clunky, and we would have to, like, re-record it three times every time. And so... Mm-hmm. Well, yeah. now we just don't re-record it. We just leave the flubs and it's true. call it We leave flavor. more flubs these days. We hope you enjoy them. I really enjoyed leaving the flub in the short pour. By the way, go check out the short pour that we did with Wind Punter. Talking about Warbreaker, my favorite Cosmere novel. Yeah, It was mine too, so but I think I don't think it's true anymore. I We can't talk about that one <laughs> in any context yet. Some people haven't seen stuff for that book yet, so we're not going to we're not going to talk about it. But okay. Today is, and we're going to have to avoid talking about it for this whole, <laughs> it's weirdly <laughs> relevant. I just, I, I just want to talk about it. Today is our fourth episode discussing The Lost Metal by Brandon Sanderson. We're going to chat about chapters 32 through 43. But before we do that, first, let's talk about what we're drinking. PJ, we didn't take our shots. Yeah, let's do that. Book. I just looked down at my cocktail. Oh my God. I'm like, oh, there's Same. a full shot right here. I was describing it and I was wondering what the fuck. All right. Cheers. Cheers. What are, what what you I've having? Uh, Tier Canal single malt Irish whiskey. Mm, so not cocktail from. Not Malacorn. This was a, actually nice. one of my Christmas gifts from Kaylin. Was was this oh, bottle? So cool. Yeah. All right. Cheers. Well, cheers. What are you drinking? I'm having Momentum vodka, the usual. Yep. Yep. Mm. Oh, that one that's, kicks different that time. That's a really really nice Irish whiskey. Nice. I feel like I was just personally attacked by that vodka, which is the yep. first time yeah. that's happened. You look distressed. I got I got shook. <laughs> <laughs> <clears throat> All right. Now what are you drinking? <laughs> we gotta, okay. Let's get into the I've got a modified version of the Lone Oak. I believe the Lone Oak was from Dead Rabbit out of New York city, but I didn't have all of the ingredients. So I just kind of went with what kind of made sense to me. So one and a half ounces of Irish whiskey, a quarter ounce of green chartreuse, three quarters of an ounce of lemon juice. And then here's where it deviates. So I did three quarters of an ounce of a rosemary simple syrup because mm. it calls for pistachio. 
simple syrup. Interesting. I have pistachios, but I didn't look at this ahead of time enough. So I didn't make that and I don't know how. So, and then it calls for a very particular bitters that I don't have. So I just used two dashes of Angostura and then I added a couple dashes of saline solution before shaking. It does also call for curry leaves to be shaken Mm -hmm. into it and then garnished with it. I don't have curry leaves. Never heard of curry leaves. So I just omitted those. But this cocktail is very, very good. I, I'm, I'm staring at it and it's half gone and we've only been talking for 20 minutes before this. Okay. It's half gone because it, it was too small for the for the glass okay. to begin with. All right. I've All only right. had like two sips of it, but it it is <laughs> like the green chartreuse comes through a little bit, but it really lets the rosemary and the Irish whiskey shine. Like it, it's... I'm surprised by how great this is based on the fact that it was pretty heavily modified from the, from mm-hmm. the original, but to follow that up, my back half beer is called freshman haze from Rocky reef brewing company out of Woodruff, Wisconsin. So that is Ooh. near Kalen's parents' place. So nice. That's where we went to. Cool. Yeah. Tasty. Mm-hmm. What about you Crossland? What are you drinking? I only made, I don't have a backup of any kind, so I only have the one, and so I'll probably reload with like an old-fashioned or something like that in the back half, depending on what I need or what I feel like I need. I am having a cocktail. We we had a lot happen all at once right before this recording, and so a little bit frazzled, but we, I started making this, and I remember most of the ingredients, so I'm going to run down them. I can't, I couldn't tell you the ratios. Just imagine how they'd make a cocktail together, and I probably did it that way. So it's a white rum, a little bit of Campari for bitters, grenadine for the sweet, like a homemade grenadine, so it was really kind of a, a nice to see punch. I used that in my cocktail for the New Year's thing, so I had some left over. A little bit of Diplomatico, Diplomatico for a little bit of a rich backbone, three-quarter ounces of pineapple juice, and I think that's it. I think that's all so it's it was. Almost a jungle bird. Almost. Yes, it's missing the citrus. But I think it's the ratio. I think it's the two the two rum pairing and the Campari that works so well here. Because the white rum that I use, I know, is a little bit on the sweeter side. It's not like Shikasa sweet, but it is still a little bit sweeter. So it has I don't know. It's got an interesting effervescence. I really like it. You know where last week I said that this drink needs citrus in order to like level it out? This one does not. The grenadine does an excellent job of providing a different layer to it, and the rest of it feels nice and balanced. It could almost use just a splash of bitters, if anything, Mm. because the Campari cuts through, but it's not bitter or problematically bitter. So either more Campari or Ango to top. Gotcha. Probably be the only change I would make, but. Got a name for it? I fucked up. Nope. All right. Cool. (laughs) That's a reasonable enough cocktail name, right? Like it's, it was just a bunch of, bunch of shit in the, (laughs) in the class. Right. Perfect. Yeah. Can't think of anything else, but yeah, that's, that's all I have beyond my usual tea and water and the momentum vodka shot. I'll, like I said, I'll probably make an old fashioned in the middle. I got an awesome cocktail book called from the geeky bartender. I think I talked a little bit about this last week that I'm really excited to dive in and make some of those cocktails because they are great. Very exciting. Mm -hmm. Yeah, made a couple cool. over Christmas. So nice. Yeah. So before we talk about the chapters, PJ, how do you feel about this week's reading? I I mean, this is so fucking cool. <laughs> 
it's it's really kind of taken a left turn for the better, frankly. But like there there's just so much more going on now. The stakes are high, the payoffs are high, the reveals are great, and it, it is just I feel like it's starting to like we're we're starting to peak Mount 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 Sanderson before this avalanche happens. Like you, I, I can tell that it's going to start happening soon. We have three episodes left. I know. You know what I mean? Like we're we're talking a we're lot, and I know through. that I kind of <laughs> right. We're we're a little bit over halfway through it. Like just just the harest of scotias because I did divide up the the end bit a little bit more clearly. And as mentioned, I considered doing an entire episode of epilogues mm-hmm. <laughs> because <laughs> there's so much epilogue, so many epilogues. <laughs> but yeah. We we aren't we aren't doing it that way, and I I totally agree with you. This book like really ratchets it up in a in a serious way, and that's part of the reason that I appreciate it so much. Is it it feels like it compared to you know we talk about SOS and Bands of Morning, they kind of have like their slow roll introduction periods. This feels like it's been rolling at a different temperature, like a rolling boil for so long, and now we're just hitting the point where we're starting to boil over after adding in you know the ingredients we needed to get there. Mm-hmm. I I will also say that there seems to be, I mean, there, there clearly is a lot of information that people that are more familiar with the Cosmere would pick up on mm-hmm. that I just don't like. I a lot of terminology, a lot of new worlds that I'm I'm just not familiar with. But it's presented from Marisy's perspective, who also doesn't understand any of it, so it doesn't feel like I'm lacking that information like it doesn't feel like i need to have that information that's awesome so that was one of the things that i definitely want to talk more about this week in general and we'll talk about that as we go through the episode but that is one of the things that i think is really fascinating about this story one of the things that also is the most concerning to it about me which is also why I didn't make us take the stop to read the stories required here. I debated it. I I don't know if you remember, but the day that I finished the book, I was like, you got to read this first. And then I pulled the message because I was like, no, you don't have to. And I don't want you to think about it because I thought it would be a more interesting experience for you to go in not and seeing how well it works Mm -hmm. as much as that could also. It was a it was a risk because it's like, how much will this impact your enjoyment of the story on the other side? I didn't think it was too big of a risk for the reasons you cited. So yeah, exactly. Yeah. It, it, it got pulled off really well. Mm-hmm. There, there is some, and I, I'm more interested to get into this once we're done with the book and we can definitely talk about it, but there is something fascinating about introducing these other magic systems in the way that it does in this section. A, not too much of a spoiler for you. Aethers aren't really introduced in any of the other books until now. So that's a learning thing for all of us at once, which is interesting to be simultaneously introduced next to the seals and the, the, that whole thing. And the, that's interesting because it's like, we're getting me as a person who's read everything. I'm getting new information at the same time that you're being presented with two new things. I'm getting one thing at the very least. So it feels like we're on the same page because Marisy is just as confused about both of those things at once. It somehow mm-hmm. works. Yeah, it's perfect. Yeah, but I do. I do think I, and this is I, I don't actually think this. I'm curious as to your take. Do you think that having these two other magic systems and like the background of Elantris to some degree with the Sions and other things that we'll talk about in a bit, do you think that takes away from the magic of this being a Mistborn story at all? No, I don't think so. 
strictly because it has been building. Like we we're, we start with the introduction of a new race of people with new technologies on the same planet, mm-hmm. and then we get the introduction to this distant god who has invaded the planet, and then we get introduced to, to new magic systems from off planet. Like I, mm-hmm. I, I think it was, it, it's a small enough section of the story. Like it, it doesn't revolve around it so much. Sure. Um. And it was a slow build into it that it doesn't feel cheap or out of place. That makes sense to me. I, I think I, I don't disagree. I think it's something that we will we'll be able to talk about more fully by the end of the story because all of the context, right? So, like, I, I don't want to fully engage in this yet because the, I think that is a question that surrounds this is do you lose do you lose something by introducing all of these other things? And I think that's a whole thing to talk about in the wrap up that'll okay. be exciting to, to tackle. But this, this is a point at which it makes sense to bring it up. So mm-hmm. um, yeah, more, more to come, I think in, in terms of not like new magic systems or anything fancy, but obviously you're getting introduced to these things and they're going to be used. And that's like the next step is using them because why right. else, why else do you introduce them? So we'll see where that goes. Cool. With that, Let's get into our chapters here. I really enjoy the way that this begins to rotate and break down these scenes throughout this section. I I know that this week is actually a little bit longer than I think I originally wanted it to, but I think that's because a lot of things kind of culminate really well within the subsection. So we start with chapter 32 and the sort of scene that has us breaking into this newspaper potentially Marisi absolutely talks them down from the breaking and entering into the newspaper building which i think is fantastic because this is this little paper in Bilming, and we're cops we can't do that like we shouldn't be doing that that's not the law here we're already on the outs with all of these different groups let's not do that and there's this conversation in wax's own internal view which is that of the lone lawman and how that is breaking down now the further and further that he gets away and Mm -hmm. how that's becoming something that's extinct and i love his like shifting view on that of course it's even funnier when the door eventually opens from the inside as moraga was there the whole time the editor-in-chief of the newspaper what'd you make of this whole scene so that that internal monologue was beautifully written and Mm -hmm. and heartbreaking but also necessary i think for him to come to that realization i appreciated the other side of that conversation with wayne how he was trying to sort of figure out a way where they could do it without getting reprimanded for it Mm -hmm. and marisi kind of putting him in his place in that way and him pointedly just kind of shrugging and accepting that to further sort of show their growth as a as a partnership and as a friendship and mutually respecting each other, which then turns into a very comical bit after he goes and finds some street food. But there, there is the aspect of this that is a little bit contrary to that conversation that wax had with himself. And that's when he, he flips on his steel alamancy and sees the person trembling with the gun and has that sort of weird through the wall standoff with them before, mm-hmm. before she ends up opening that door. Um, yeah, that's, that's a fair point. And I think, I think an important one, I mean, he's not really trying to do anything, but he notices that window curtain move or the, the steel behind there's something that 
ticks him off into thinking that she's there and then he burns steel and you know jumps into it that way yeah it's a fair point but if you're an allomancer like crazy to think that he probably wasn't just burning steel the whole time but i think it's still an important character progression note and he's not He's not fully changed, especially as we approach this later and we talk about the literal B&E that he does end up pulling, which is definitely <laughs> outside of the the parameters of the law. But needless to say, it's interesting to see this conversation about the change and shift in times. Mm-hmm. So getting into the newspaper itself and Moraga as the whole, this is a very interesting character and in progression, I think, to be to introduced to, especially given her sort of the, the context around the paper that we really talk about more in the next chapter. But this is when we really start to get some of the overlap with some of the yellow papers. We've talked about this in like looser terms as it applies to all of these newspapers in the past. But this is fascinating because it almost directly tries to parallel something like the New York Post, which also posts things about like Mothman and UFOs and shit like that, and, like doesn't keep anything off the table. And she kind of does that whole thing. It's fun, too, of course, that Moraga herself only really is able to place a ton of faith into Wax and Wayne because of mentioning Alamancer Jack and his sort of critical connection to this whole mess of a story is literally something I could not have fathomed or fabricated in yeah. bands of morning yeah he is strangely becoming a very important part of the story like i think we've talked about it we, we assumed yeah. that he was a, a story i assumed that it was basic describing wax's exploits through a different character even though wax technically shows up as a character in the stories themselves and maybe that's still the case like maybe mm. that's still true anyway and it's just taking credit for it. But the fact that it's a real person is starting to come to light. And like, he's now central to the <laughs> unraveling of this entire story. It's, it's a fun change of events. Yeah. It's, it's so, I, I know that we have talked about this before to your point, but it is so fascinating to see how critically important that ends up being to to this whole exchange. And it only becomes more important, of course, with Wayne's involvement in the scene, right? He's snacking down on this chowda sandwich that Wax doesn't fully recognize as well, which is interesting. I think Wax refers to it as like, God, what is it? Like a crepe with grease or something like that? Bits of meat or grease, he couldn't really tell. But to Wayne's knowledge, I imagine in my head, it's got to be like somewhere between like a taco and a pita bread or like something like that. Yeah, I um, imagine Euro-ish. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, that was that's kind of the way that my brain goes with that description. But Wayne's knowledge in this moment of Alamancer Jack coming through is so clutch is lovely. <laughs> it's great because it feeds into that beginning of the story with the prologue and sort of the critical nature of, of Wayne and really appreciating these sort of stories and progression. And it shocks both Wax and Marisi that he's read anything to begin with, which is yeah, fun as Mar- well. Marisi pushes him on like, I thought you were illiterate or I didn't know you could read or whatever she says. Mm-hmm. And his, his response was hilarious of, yeah, yeah, but I'm dumb. So I can only read dumb things. <laughs> which is so fucking funny you know yeah it's such it's such a great example of like a small way to tease into it and i i just really really appreciate it it's it's super great but this chapter ends with her holding up some metal plates to take down the information in from the conversation that they're about to have i think that context is technically added in the next chapter but to the point she grabs the metal plates and holds them up. This would be a fun teasing spot to to end on, and I debated it, but I think because of the way that this parallels so well into the rest of the section, I didn't want to end here, you know? Yeah. 
Yeah, it's fair. The metal plates. Marisi has, I think, the same realization that I did in maybe Well of Ascension mm-hmm. or Hero of Ages. I can't remember exactly when they reveal the actual metal plates and like describe them. But I'm on, I, like, I'm on her page. Like, I thought they were going to be like big, thick steel like mm. plates as opposed to like really thin metal <laughs> metal sheets that can be etched with like a fingernail basically yeah the way that that's described it's it's very easy for it to end up like writing into it and everything else it's like um, tin so yeah, basically right right it is i i think it's described as tin right i think it's a tin thing that she's can't remember. etching in yeah and i i love I love that it's tin and I love that it's talking about these sheets coming out, but obviously the ones back in Hero of Ages and whatnot were thicker metal, right? Like these were, they were like hammering it in from the way it was described, it seemed. Except for when give the message to, is Demu? Not Demu. No, Gorodel. Uh, Gorodel's was, the, was it Gorodel the guy who dies, was, who runs yeah. it. Yeah, yeah that, was, right. that was described Those in were a similar sheets. way to this. Yeah. Yes, yeah. For sure. Yeah. All the Lord Ruler sheets seem to be like thick, epic, you know, right. by, by comparison. They were um, mounted on the wall and... Right. More like plaques, less like sheets. These are sheets. Yeah. Yeah. Just as, effect- just as effective, though. Right. Right. So we go into chapter 33 and we flip to Marisi's perspective on this whole scene. And I, I find Marisi's perspective to be really especially in these moments, really interesting because both Marisi and Wax have grown so much that their perspectives on the same moments have changed and shifted so dramatically. The way that Wax reads Marga is very different than the way that Marisi reads her and the way that she thinks about her as a journalist, I think is really incredible, even though Wax is, again, intentionally demeaning to the work that she does. And there's there's this measure of reading things entirely differently between the two of them that I think is really fascinating that we get here over the course of the scene. Mm -hmm. And I wonder how much of that is just innate and like how they view publications and how much of it is Mm -hmm. his dislike of Alamancer Jack and the fact that he's featured in this paper on a regular basis. And like, if that's tainted his view specifically to this publication. Yeah, it could be. And I, I think that there's I mean, there's something to be said about like being jaded with age. But that's also he is also almost dismissing everything that she does as opposed to seeing what she's capable of, which is sort of the difference. Right. And that's that sort of purity test that we've known wax to have before that Marisi has gradually lost in the search for truth, which is kind of a fascinating comparison to me at the very least from a perspective standpoint. Makes yeah. wax a great sword, but sometimes you need a, a magnifying glass. Right yeah those yeah those descriptors work (laughs) right it's pretty great but there there is that conversation around credibility that i think is important and i think that we mentioned a little bit before with the yellow papers and sort of the history there there's this conversation from wax's perspective about credibility and i kind of wanted to pick your mind about the conversation about the papers and the reputations given the context that we have in the stories and in this circumstance, real world context on the Industrial Revolution and their impact. I, I get some like Mad Magazine vibes, but not quite as comedic, kind of, if that makes sense. I also said New York Post earlier as a comparison. They're probably better examples, but those were some of the ones that came to mind. Yeah. Mad Magazine makes sense to me. And I, I don't think mm-hmm. you have to, to temper it saying that it's less comedic because she talks about how it's filled with stories and comics 
and, point. And and things like dick that. Pics. And, yeah. Hmm? yeah. Dick pics later. Vegetables that look like dicks. Yeah. yeah. Yep. And it seems to me that these are all presented without the pretense of them being truths. Yeah. Like and and maybe it's just this publication has the reputation of being false. Like, is is it like the onion? Not quite. I don't think it's satirical. No, because that's satirical, right? There, right. she's she's giving this context of like saying the truths that others won't, or perhaps entertaining stories that have partial truths within them, and then wax comes back with so lies, regardless. Like, yeah, you know. But she like she like makes a publication of a Bigfoot, right? Her readers know what they're getting. Like her readers yeah. understand like this is this is for entertainment, not for news. Right. Not a, and Wax's primarily thing. Yes, yeah. totally. And Wax's thing I think is that like not everyone believes that and you're assuming a lot of your audience. I, I think that's his perspective on her. That's what it feels like his perspective on it is from the writing from my perspective. And yeah, it'd be interesting kind of like to the, to see what how it's marketed. If there's anything, any any sort of disclaimer or anything like that, or if it's presented as if these are truths, just like any other broadsheet in the city. I'm sure it is. That was kind of my perspective. I'm sure it's presented just like any other broadsheet, but because of some of the absurdity, they would think that they would take it differently. Or maybe she can tell herself that to go to sleep at night, you know? And it, it gets to this really... Man, I, I got I got a lot to say about the the weapons and the bunkers, right? Because then we get to the truth of the matter. She's built up this reputation as this sort of middling tier, semi satirical, comedic thing that posts these half truths, and then having all of this information from Tobel Copper on the weapons and the bunkers and the testing and all of the research that they've done to really try to pull this information together as a group is is fascinating and it's almost this this whole concept is almost in its own way the inverse of the original ascension kind of a descension of the world or a declination in the way that there's like this missed go date and all this there's so much here i love i love this section and the sort of uncoiling of this conspiracy Mm -hmm. to some degree there's a lot more to say there but any any thoughts on that first part before i go into the rest I, man this is so much information like it, yeah it's great right. it's great context but it's hard to it's hard to really formulate thoughts on it because it's all just a conspiracy of scattered information that doesn't necessarily have direct connective tissue to it right so it's just and- a lot of a lot of pins without a lot of red string yeah, exactly. And there there may be red string, but there's some there's some pins that are going to question marks that we don't really have the truth of right yet. And, you know, I, I guess here's the other thing. Moraga has guilt in this moment because Copper has disappeared or is dead and they they no longer know where he is. And she feels like she ultimately has this responsibility. And I guess my question to you is like, what what do you think her responsibility is, given the context that we have? What's the move when you're a citizen with this intro info? What's your duty? And especially if you consider like, A, we think the police are in on it, which is generally a conspiratorial yeah. mindset. You know, it's like <laughs> if the police well, are in but on in it, this who do case, I report it's to? true. Yeah. Yeah. Like, I, it's- 100%. I just want to. I want to bring up this reminds me so much of the general debate of the end of Watchmen and what you do with Rorschach's journal, right? Like, yeah. what do you do with it? What's your responsibility? It's impossible. But, it's an impossible yeah. question to answer. But I think truly, 
self self-preservation until you can find the right person to hand off the information to and not let this mm-hmm. information die with you by like taking too brash of a step and like allowing it to get uncovered and squashed and by squashed i mean you like you would get splatted yeah so like uh, unfortunately i think she made the right move even though it feels like the sh- the chicken shit move of like hiding but until somebody like wax comes by and shows up there's not really a whole lot that can be reasonably done without tasting taking heavy heavy risk and i mean i'd love to say that the right move is to just publish all of it but there's got to be some self-preservation especially if you're the one with the information and and maybe the hunches of how they all connect without having the the hard facts yeah oh, god i i love this section of the story because it does it digs into you know i i think one of the criticisms that i would have levied if like the series would have ended at bands of mourning is it always feels like it's touching on a lot of these things but it doesn't directly interact with them and i love the way that this directly interacts with the lack of of accessible and believable news as a source. And so this really interrogates that in a much more open way than the rest of the stories do. Because like we also assumed that Alamancer Jack was fake, how do you even believe the regular broadsheets? And then you're telling me that this sort of comedic spinoff is going to be the one that's going to publish the truth? It's Oh, that's it's another such... good point then. If she does publish it without having yeah anything like really solid to back it up, it just gets dismissed because mm-hmm. of the broadsheet that she's produced. Like, if the New York Post legitimately found pictures of UFOs, like real ones, how yeah. do they report on that? <laughs> right. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, it's it's that whole, like... <laughs> You know, I we do we don't need to go too far down this rabbit hole, but that's kind of the funny thing to me about the fact that like Tom DeLong's fucking interactions with the government is what led to the the fucking thing, and it, he published all that shit with government approval six months before it got picked up as real headlines because people were waiting to verify the sources and they were like trying to make sure that all the information was legit but he put it out as like directly from the government here's your information it took so long for people to believe it because he's a stupid fucking punk rock dude who's been singing about (laughs) aliens for two decades like of course no one's gonna believe you there's no better evidence not not to talk about like the uab things and like all the other things that say that like it could be instrumentation there are other arguments i don't we don't need to get into that side of it but it's very funny to be because it is almost a parallel situation Mm. yeah yeah it's hilarious too good too good ah so of course another the other side of this plot wise is that we're finding out that the rocket that they built in their their various transmission devices are having difficulty you know some of them don't reach far enough and the rockets in general don't seem to have the propulsion to have the area radius that they seem to i did mention earlier that i feel like this parallels the original ascension i didn't really mean ascension there i meant more that it parallels the end of the world in hero of ages right where they started to do like the crop circles and the way that they were decreasing their crop supply as the mist got more aggressive and certain encroach on territory this is like the opposite wherein the missile radius and the weapon radius is blooming and growing based on assumptions as we look at the target of ellendale right and the the way in which they can reach distances over time 
But there's also this picture of the end of the world of Elendel covered in ash. What do you think is going on between these two disparate pieces of information? Um, including this sort of future proof. Like, that's fascinating. Yeah, so there, there's a couple ideas. One was that it was like a picture from a long time ago that's been since colorized. I don't I don't buy that. We've established that time travel isn't a thing in this universe unless that's been retconned. But I'm going to assume that... Wait, that, what? What's been retconned? Hmm? Wait, what? Sorry. I, I We've... It's been established that time travel will not happen in the Cosmere. Oh, that's sort of an out-of-context thing. Okay, remember that we trust layers of words of Brandon as right. best as we can, right? Exactly. That's what, um, that's what I meant with an absolute... Content. Okay, like, if all that's right, been, all right. Yeah. If that's been... Sorry. Like, yep. Since thrown to the wayside. But my guess on this is that it's a scale model. It's a, a smaller-scale model replica of Elendil with a scaled-down bomb to test the efficacy of the destruction. Hmm. Okay. And then maybe to produce warnings or, I don't know. A reaction? Yeah, something. Responses. Sure. Yeah, that makes sense. To be shared with either the Ellendale public or the the officials at large, whoever it might be. Mm-hmm. But that's my guess, is that this was a weapons test where the target was a scale model of the the city, and now they're trying to scale that up to actually deal with the actual sized Elendel and their delivery mechanisms. Their, their rocket itself isn't scaling as they expected it would. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Which makes a lot of sense from like just rocket development in general. Smaller rockets are much easier to deal with than larger rockets because you have to account for the fuel that it needs to propel itself. Right. So a small scale test makes sense to you. And then, yeah. And then they didn't realize that it wouldn't be a linear scale up. Sure. Where are they hiding the small scale test site though? Like what's that? I haven't yet figured that out. Okay. That's fair. (laughs) I I haven't yet thought about that. Okay. Yeah. So moving on from the story of the paper itself, we end the chapter with Telson showing up, having finally deduced from the back of the envelope that it was a fucking address, as she basically says. It's one of those things where I feel like that should have been the reaction to some degree. I can't believe it's a fucking address. (laughs) Feels like a very Telson reaction, you know, this whole time. But a bastard woman God thing. Yeah, we... (laughs) oh man we've got a lot to talk about with her but that's chapter 34 shit so you know the chemist was the secret to the whole thing as we find out very quickly telson's got a lot going on here what do you think of what she says about the deadline of two days and the information that she shares regarding pain and her abilities there's there's so much to this conversation that's kind of layered in in depth and it continues of course but you know what do you what do you make i really liked wax and wayne's dissection of her claim and the deduction that it's probably a longer time frame than she than she means like like she's giving them a false sense of hope by giving them two days when in reality maybe it's one day um Mm -hmm. i don't i there's a lot in this section if not this chapter directly that seems to counter that 
line of thinking. Like maybe they have even more time than that. I don't, I, I don't know what to make of it. There seems to be a lot of contradiction and they're like, she seems desperate, but also confident. And like, it's, it's just really, really difficult to read her. I don't trust anything that she said. Like, I don't <laughs> think she's telling the truth. Like, yeah, right. either, if it's less time or more time, sure. I don't believe it's actually two days. She's proven herself in, in her deception skills and fuck her. I don't know. <laughs> I don't like her. <laughs> yeah. I mean, tell you're right. I, I think that's a great read. Like Telson is fascinating in that perspective of where like she is absolutely a master manipulator in, in so many contexts. I mean, it, this doesn't really happen until chap until chapter 35, but you begin to start to feel those tendrils eke back out in a big way. And she's very skilled at what she's doing. You know, she's, mm-hmm. she's able to push on all these buttons very effectively. This, of course, this like whole thing ends. And like you said, there's this whole reading of the situation and trying to assess it with Wayne setting up a speed bubble to quickly have a discussion about what to do here and how to react. And obviously this is one of those things where I think Telson would probably know that they have a speed bubble. Like, are they coughing on the, even if they don't like, they're probably coughing on the way out as they do, but you know, there's there's some stuff here. What do you think about the speed bubble? I have a theory, a suspicion. It doesn't get confirmed. It doesn't get like addressed at all. But I don't think I don't think it's gonna stop her from hearing what they're saying. Like I, I think yeah, with her cough, but yeah. well, but I mean, like it's all super sped up. So it's mm-hmm. almost unintelligible. But if she has like God's hearing, could she mm-hmm. parse out what they're actually saying through the bubble? Maybe. I yeah. I have the suspicion that she can. Yeah. Because I don't think she's like, I, I think she's perceptive enough to know that they're in a speed bubble and she just, it j- doesn't go addressed. That's so I fair. think she heard everything that they said. And there is they're also not saying anything under the vest. No, no, that's Sorry. true. But I, I think this maybe is her realizing that she can listen through speed bubbles and they're going to use this trick again down the line when they do reveal something mm. important. Important clarification. Listen through speed bubbles is what you're suggesting or listen after a speed bubble closes. Those are two very through different it. things. Like, because you can hear within the speed bubble, it just sounds like like chipmunks talking is how it was described. Okay. Yes. Listening through the speed bubble to me means listening in live time to what they're saying. Right. Yes. But but the perception would be like super condensed. And then they're usually after the speed bubble. Right. That's after the speed bubble. It's wild. I think that I think that's I think that's a (laughs) strangely important clarification. It's It's not. It's it's not quite. It doesn't. It doesn't build it up and like release it when they when they pop the bubble. But the perception is that almost no time has passed on the outside. So they cough to cover up this like fast forward voice. Yes. Into transition. But I understand that. What I'm suggesting is, is that she can listen through the speed bubble, meaning through time she can hear it. She has her own form of delayed time manipulation is what you're suggesting by listening through no. the speed bubble. Okay. That's not what I'm suggesting. That's what I'm trying to clarify. I'm That's suggesting an important that clarification. she like as they're talking within the speed bubble, yep. people on the outside would yep. hear like oh, I something totally super get fast. That. And she's totally just able to get process that. that with 
that is that is the way that we understand how things work we're dealing with autonomy of whom obviously has a set of powers that we may be unaware of so that was okay my question or my yeah clarification if that makes sense so you're not saying that this is outside of the bounds of normal stuff for the most part no just just hyper ability to process very very fast sounds yeah call call it some form of tin basically something like that yeah sure okay but they don't talk about anything crazy important you know for for the most part it's wayne being caught up on who trell is and sort of the distinction between trell and telson which collectively you can use kind of as the same term and that autonomy of whom is different and has will have the avatar of trell on the planet which is telson supposedly as we find out later could be gavin and drone she hasn't fully picked have to earn it but Mm -hmm. yeah it's complicated (laughs) yeah there's there's a lot there which is why i was like i have to clarify because listening through to me does not feel the same as listening to the post of a bubble i i think you and i have different interpretations of what happens when the bubbles up I understand the equivalent of the red blue shift that they're trying to equate to. It's a question of, could you create a link between consciousness and the bubble? Like, could someone see faster than standard light time or could they interpret? Could they hear faster? Is there a way that they could enhance their senses with time dilation to be able to point being, it would be an additional power was kind of the ask there. It would be outside of the normal realm. Okay of abilities that's what i was trying to clarify they they catch up on things you know it's like how much bend bend alloy do you have you know there's this demigod of course watching us how are we going to sneak there wax believes that maybe wayne is pilfering from his bank account which is funny there's the i shot her conversation and the virginity bit i give away my virginity all the time i think wayne (laughs) says which is a you know of course a classic yeah this was special. You know, all of that, I think, is excellent. And then there's also the note about Marisy, of course, or not Marisy, Moonlight being standing on the outside and thinking that she can help. And this decision to split into two teams as our Scooby-Doo gang here splits up. And there's this confrontation between when Marisy moves me a little bit as they exchange and give this ribbon away that he he kind of stole there. And it's just as a reminder, it's wonderful. Mm-hmm. What would you make of this this little scene of them yeah. splitting up? The partnership well, I, I do up. want to go backwards a little bit because there's levity in it, but I thought it was a little bit heavy too. Oh no, when, I, I don't know the ribbon. I don't think is I, levity necessarily, but no, I, I'm talking backing up a little bit, talking about the bank account, like Wax's bank account. Like, where'd you get this money from? Like, who did you take mm-hmm. this money from? And Wayne's response is someone useless. Mm, right. Which. Yeah is funny Again. on surface but understanding that he's talking about himself mm-hmm. maybe that that's a little bit heavier than we're attributing uh, oh that is definitely not a a jokey joke that is definitely right. meant to be a, a self dig and he commits to those bits quite a bit over the course of this um mm. book and I think in context, it would be interesting to go back and see how much of that is also there in the other books that we're just not paying nearly as much attention to. Well, he's not wealthy back then. It's not the wealth. What I'm saying is, is that the sort of self digs and sort of the the depression that is in a lot of those moments, because they're there to some degree, but how much now that we know the depth of his 
his feelings does that impact some of those jokes that were outside of perspective that's a good point yeah, yeah. so um, they got away from the point but no no you're good but going forward again to your point about their departure. I think there's a lot more to this relationship between Wayne and Marisy. And I'm not, I'm not going romantic or anything like that. If that's where you think I'm going with this, but like there, there's something more than a partnership more than like, it, mm-hmm. it's something very strongly familial almost like they have grown so close and I don't remember him acting this sentimental in any time with with wax. Anytime they split up to do anything, like th- this feels different for some reason. Maybe he it sees does. her as more of an equal, like they're they're partners as opposed to him being the sidekick. I think so. I and I think that it's also an acknowledgement of like it's weird for me to go from you to him now because we've been partners for six years. Like I feel like I'm abandoning you. And so it's also almost like he's leaving a piece of him behind in the form of this ribbon with her. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's right. And it's interesting to me. I I find it very interesting because it does feel like this dramatic handoff and it feels like a a big deal in context. I really love it. Mm -hmm. And that's that sort of end the way that they decide to split up and drop the speed bubble, ultimately kind of heading off in their different directions, taking off behind Telson, following her out. And then our three M's kind of heading off on their own is the way that the scene splits before we head to part three. The three M's. Part three. Yeah, I mean, the the triple triple M thread of Marisi, Moonlight, and Moraga. Who does that? Brandon, who hurt you? The the M's and the W's. M's and the W's. W for Wombo. Okay, so we head into part three, of which is the last part of the book. This is our final part breakdown, so this is exciting that we've, like you said, we're cresting a mountain, it feels, and we're we're beginning, we're beginning. But we cut to chapter 35, and oh man, this conversation between Telson and Wax is a lovely one, exploring the complicated positions that these two siblings find themselves in against each other at this time. Telson believes that she is saving the world at the same time as seizing power and sees Harmony as a god incapable of his role and incompetent and impotent in general and useless in these moments. The sacrifice to her to survive of Elendel absolutely makes sense, and she can justify that in her own mind for the survival of the world. I think somewhere along the line, it's it's the analogy is used of like cut off the finger to save the body or something like that. I think that might even be Steris later, but yeah. Uh, what do you think? Something like that. You know, I get it. I get where she's coming from, but mm-hmm. in order for that to make sense, we have to be okay with assuming that trail winning or autonomy winning is an inevitability. Like we have to assume that there is no way that autonomy can be defeated in this sense. Mm-hmm. So if that's the case, if that's the assumption we're working under, I get this. I don't necessarily agree with the course of action, but I get where she's coming from. And I think that's what makes this such a complex like villain to deal with. Yeah. Um, and frankly, she's right about harmony being useless here it's autonomy's fault like it's autonomy's direct action that makes that the case 
but she's not wrong. I don't know. Yeah, right. It's I mean, without without autonomy's involvement here, it does become a more interesting question of of action. And it's it's not that she's wrong that harmony is useless. It's just that like ultimately you're condoning, you know, bombing a big group of populists to keep the peace for the rest of the population. And isn't that utilitarian at this point, though? Well, it feels like it provided autonomy isn't lying. And that's that's the problem here is that that is the problem is is autonomy actually telling the truth? And is there any word of truth that you can believe in what this God is promising effectively? Yeah. You know. Yeah, it's, it's it requires some pretense. Like it, it requires her holding true the belief that autonomy will annihilate the planet if she doesn't do this properly. Mm-hmm. But if she wholeheartedly believes that she's truly acting in in whatever righteous sense this is for her, I, I don't know. It's yeah. hard to grapple it- with. It is tough to parse. I, I totally agree with you here. And that's that's maybe one of the more convoluted things that I find about autonomy in general, even as autonomy is described a little bit later in this section, or maybe it's in two sections. I forget. Oh, no, no, no. It's at the end of the chapter when it's kind of autonomy being described and sort of the based on our whims. There's just there's a sort of. I don't want to call it an irony. Maybe it's a little ironic. I I was there's a sort of duplicity to autonomy I think naturally in the way that she is this sort of sense of individuality as long as it's coercing to her own ideology like as long as it's her thoughts of what's best or whatever is believed it's okay yeah and there, that's that's mentioned is that this section or is that somewhere it's, else it's at the it's at the end of this chapter okay um, yeah yeah but talking about like her whims yep. Yeah, because there's a joke about whimsy in there as well. And I'm kind of jumping ahead at this point before talking about some of the other stuff that's mentioned in this chapter. I I really couldn't tell if that part of the conversation with Telson was said sarcastically or ironically or sincerely. Like, I I could not get a read on how how far she was, like, drinking the Kool-Aid, so to speak. Yeah. Was she buying in not in, into this line of thinking, or was she being ironic about it, or or mm-hmm. I don't know. Yeah, I I feel like she's not being ironic. I feel like she was trying to explain it as best as she can. She's also killing time, as we find out over the course of the chapter. So she's you know basically just playing for time to keep him there to try to delay further, so that they can make more progress without Wax's interference. And any minute that she can buy is better. So she chooses to buy as many minutes as she can by elaborating and talking forever on these platitudes. And mm-hmm. yeah, there's there's a lot there too. That that said, it it is it is a complicated thing because I I think that fundamentally this isn't a complex question if you have any doubt in harm or in autonomy whatsoever. Like this is a very clean cut. Like if I have doubt, it makes no sense for me to nuke a city to try to save the world. If I doubt that you're going to follow through or capable of it. So, right. Yeah, yeah. this is, this is, or that there isn't a better path, right? This is buy-in totally. That's, that's a great way of phrasing it. This is her choice 
and she's actively chosen aside, which I think is something that Wax also kind of accuses her of in the end is like, you're just, and you're the one with the reins, I think is sort of the way that that conversation ends up going. Like you're the one who should be in charge. Yeah. But there's also a quick mention that I just have to bring up when he's still very nervous around this whole conversation where he brings up these new Hades killer rounds that were developed that blow off limbs that have the secondary charge that would activate after lodging themselves into blowout spikes. God damn it. Did I want to see this used on her neck? <laughs> like just, just dislodge like, I just head. talked about sort of the moral ambiguity of what she's doing and like whether or not like she bought into this fully and feels fully justified in her decision because it's truly going to save most of the world. Like, don't give a shit at this point. I just want that used on her throat. <laughs> Yeah, I could not agree more with you. <laughs> Use it on her throat. Blow her head off. Like, come on. I think, does... Wayne makes a joke long before this, I think in one of the last couple of weeks, where, like, he had his torso separated at one point versus his body and, like, his ability to heal it, how long that took. Isn't that a thing? It was, no, fuck. That didn't happen the way that I'm expecting it to. He was talking about healing limbs, which is a completely different thing. I'm thinking of a thing from the game Midnight Suns in which Wolverine says that and he has his body separated and it takes okay. a moment. Anyway, we talked about me. Miles yeah. hundred lives and um, yes, his ability to heal was so fast that he could heal through like a sword chop to the throat. Mm-hmm. Right. Right. Or was that something that we came up with? I think it was a supposition that we made. We were, we were trying to kind of like dance around that. I don't remember the outcome, so I'm not going to claim any sort of, I, I mean, not our outcome of our conversation, whether or not it's canon. <laughs> so I'm not okay. going to claim on either side. Whether I remember or not it was us like talking about needing Deadpool like a guillotine and yeah. to like keep the, the two halves separated so they couldn't fuse right. back together. But I don't remember that was also stemmed off of something that we posited in the first place right yeah totally so there there's this other note that she drops inside of this conversation which is that elendel and scadriel at large are well behind other planets because they've been coddled by harmony do you feel like this is true based on what telson is saying or another one of those arguments from autonomy as to why they need to act Where, where do you land on this side this you know goes into the previous things but this is just another nugget of autonomy or harmony I think this is a well-constructed argument by autonomy mm-hmm. used to convince people like Telson to join her or him or it, or I don't know if this God has a gender. I think that it's established that autonomy is a her, but has many avatars that are other genders and that any of the avatars could be any gender. And that perhaps if she's inhabiting one of those, it could be a different gender to begin with. But I, I think that that's from what I recall, the correct thing bavidane or whatever her name is is this feels kind of like the sinclair broadcasting group telling all their broadcasters to share exactly the same wording of a story to (laughs) to the populace that's what it feels like to me (laughs) fascinating (laughs) interesting (laughs) I like it. Especially Hello, Sinclair can- Broadcasting. I am yeah. not your enemy. <laughs> we might be enemies, but <laughs> I hate you. 
make, to make it very clear, Sinclair, we're going to take a hardline stance. We're sorry that you exist. You do more detriment to the world news environment than you will ever admit. And if you want to buy us out, you know, I'll take I'm not it above it. <laughs> <laughs> I'll take it back. I've got a bribe threshold. It's not that large. <laughs> no, it's pretty big. Right, I got, I got some, I got some backbone, but every backbone stretches with a little bit of coinage in between the the Crossland spinal. and PJ. Scruples the podcasts. Scruples, definitely scruples. No, but I think on top of that, this becomes really your Sinclair point is really interesting and contrasting versus the discussion around Moraga's paper as well, Hmm. because it is such the inverse and it sort of speaks to the way that none of these things are the same or on that level of corruption yet. And it's something I think we could very well see in the future. I mean, I would be shocked if that didn't crop up, considering what Brandon's starting to evaluate, even at the end of these books. Just to just to answer your question a little bit. Sure. I think... Scadrial's position in in sort of the solar system. I don't know if it's the solar system. I don't know if it's one sun with a bunch of planets or if it's a bunch of solar systems in a system. I don't know if that's been established. But wait, what? One more time. The Is there a single sun? Like no, they're a single all different. star. They're all, they're all no, different they're star all, systems. Yeah, they're different. They call them solar systems. systems. So, yeah. They're repeatedly referred to as systems. So, okay. Gotcha. Like I I have no doubt that they're actually technologically behind, especially considering Harmony's like conversations about it. in I think the man's morning saying that like they should have had a radio by now. And like, he seems to think that he's coddling them and that's the source of their lack of technological advancements. But I don't know if that's entirely true. Because, yes, coddling removes necessity for things and necessity drives in innovation. Like that, that's the old adage. But that doesn't mean that they're going to catch up. Like it doesn't mean that's the sole reason why they're behind everybody else. Like there there mm. are so many reasons why that could be the case. environmental factors there's the whole lord ruler thing that basically restarted shit from from the jump like they've been around for 300 years effectively like this planet was restarted 300 years ago Mm -hmm. i guess not necessarily this planet but this part of this planet so it's hard to argue that it's solely due to coddling like this seems like a pretty advanced group of people in 300 years. Yeah, I, I agree. I think that that's a fair point, especially because of coddling. If if you compare to someone like Autonomy or maybe some of the other shards that we're unaware of, right? How far could other shards have just intentionally pushed forward their society because of their intent and their drive to do so, right? Like Autonomy, of course, as we see even in the city of Bilming, is a driving force to perpetuate and create things. Ruin and preservation are not forces that are meant necessarily for advancement especially in combination and they're Um, not really meant for coddling either yeah right so despite harmony's intentions like if he intended to keep them safe and coddle them and is now regretting that i don't think he had that capability yeah or at the very least yeah 
I mean, he was definitely protecting them from the force of from the red representation of the force of autonomy before this, as we learn at the end of Band's Morning. Like he was definitely shielding in an attempt to, but I think that's a great point. Also, why are they so? Why would autonomy be so? Af- the the argument feels like a false argument to begin with because of how afraid autonomy is of the damage that Scadrial can do and that being her reason for wanting to take out the planet. There's a sort of, I mean, there's yeah. a direct contradiction there of like, we're so behind. It's, we we're never going to make it. What? No. You know? Yeah. Yeah. Clearly, if, if we weren't a threat, <laughs> you wouldn't be doing this. So, yeah, it'd be like if we had multiple ages on this world and each mm-hmm. age was a different country. It'd be like us. If America was still 21st century America, like we need to take out 12th century Europe because they're a threat to our. <laughs> yeah. To our prosperity. Very much. Physically. So. They're a physical physically. threat to us. Yes. Yes. Have you seen They've- those fucking catapults? I think <laughs> they might be able to cross the ocean. And that's assumptive. That's hilarious. <laughs> that's assumptive <laughs> of how far in advance the other civilizations are to begin with, because we don't have those details. Right. And we don't really have a timeline. So um, one detail that we don't have mm-hmm. on this on this argument. Sure. Is. Is she talking about two different sets of people like has Ellendell and the basin been coddled? And they're not technologically advanced enough, but the Malwish are more advanced and a real threat to the rest of the system. Like, both could be true if they're talking about two different groups of people on the same planet. Very true. I see what you're saying. Yeah, Yeah, maybe the Malwish are a bigger threat. Or maybe other organizations are to begin with. Hmm. The the Wowish. On the other side of the wish the northern there 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 is that other what are they called the unmasked or the maskless of the south like they're further south that are dangerous that are hinted at at the bands of morning at the end of bands of morning I didn't pick that up I'm pretty sure that's that's what they're called the maskless or yeah there's some scarier civilization that's south doesn't mean that they're necessarily more advanced but like where they come from but that's the thing I definitely brought it up at least once so I'm sure you did but I don't I have a bad it's okay. They haven't been made a big deal, so it's not it's not your <laughs> not your deal. My brain um, is bad. Cool. So before we close <laughs> out this chapter, of course, I, I think that there are two other things to talk about. One is a very subtle thing that we'll mention right before the end. But I love that Wax also has this reflection in this chapter of how his power lies and how he's changed. Well, her faults lie in how she stayed the same. And I think that's such a wonderful presentation of the way that these siblings have split since their foundations right like telson has just doubled down on ideology repeatedly 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 wherein at the very least while wax has maintained an ideology to some degree in his lawmanness and he hasn't fully changed like we were just talking about last chapter or two chapters ago at the very least he's the flexibility to adapt and to learn and understand and that's better than someone who's completely rigid and will never change their ideals this monologue or internal monologue feels like the thesis statement for this book yeah like or it feels like it could be the thesis Mm -hmm. statement for this book as as the primary 
theme. And I don't know if I've felt like that has been so like stark in any of the other books that we've read so far. That's definitely fair. Yeah. I think that makes sense. Yeah. I'm not mad about it. (laughs) No, no, I I wasn't suggesting that you were mad about it. I just hadn't put that level of thought on it. If that makes sense. Mm -hmm. I think this chapter is sort of feels like a thesis chapter in general on the way that a lot of this book and the ideology behind the reason that all of these things are happening kind of breaks down, which is why we've spent a lot of time talking about, and philosophizing around these topics. Right. Yeah. Cool. Cool. Uh, all right. There's the final thing that we have to mention before they end up walking away, but there's the mention or rather before wax ends up like slipping off the top and like just disappearing into the night while she's still talking to herself with her back turned. But there's the mention of whimsy, which is a shard. Of course it's capitalized in the book it's saying that there is this shard out there. And I, I just find that, fun and an interesting little tidbit that i feel you like find we have to bring it whimsical up. i do find it whimsical <laughs> perhaps yeah mayhaps a uh, bit of whimsy if you i don't i don't it's not public yet but if you join our patreon you can access pj's symposium of media and whimsy which shares a word uh-huh. with what we just talked about so it feels relevant to plug here (laughs) it does doesn't it (laughs) (laughs) shares a word in the title no it's it's just fun to every time a shard is revealed with some kind of intent to some degree it's always a it's an interesting tidbit for the community to glom on on and be like what is the intent of a whimsical shard what does that look like how's that brought up and and who decides if it's whimsical like where where does that get defined because that feels so subjective you yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm. Absolutely. Yeah. Cause even like you think about autonomy and autonomy is defined in a very different way than I would define autonomy, you know, like, or the way that I might imagine the intent of autonomy. And it's worth pointing out at the very least that these are the closest approximations to the words that embody the intent, right? It's not, it's not pure. There's something else there, but they're trying to embody it in language for something that is a fraction of a God as we understand it. So, right. You know, yeah, that's hard. <laughs> I mean, it just means that you can ascribe all kinds of things to it in your own personal definition, but the definition of the book may be very different because of what that could mean in its sort of direction. There's some more definition there, but you know, in general, realmatic theory lends itself to a, a, a semi-rigid structure, but this feels like some of one of the looser components to this because as mentioned like ruin is also kind of in its own way progress because degradation leads to progress you know we've mm-hmm. discussed some of those functions before in the earlier misborn episodes but right huh. i want cool. to know so much more <laughs> all of this pj you are only six books behind the rest of us now two novellas well you're more than that because you didn't read all the Arcanum Unbounded stuff. So, But you're welcome to, except for Edge Dancer, which we've talked about before. I've mentioned that many a time. I you can read them whenever you want. These very pretty books. You cannot read your very pretty books. Get covered in dust mm-hmm. and forgotten. But they're going to look uh, really nice on the shelf. Yeah. I need to figure out my bookshelf. Man, this You do need mess. to figure out a bookshelf. Just, I mean, just because it, it would look cool. But especially given the way your back wall is, like you could build some shelving I, out of there. I, yeah, I might do a floating bookshelf yeah. thing. Yeah. All right, cool. We 
go to chapter 36, and we move to Marisi and her concern over Moraga. She's sent to the Nightbridge District to be taken care of by the organization that Kim slash Moonlight works for in, in a place that's supposedly a safe house. Marisi uses this information moments later to get them to take the next step forward in the cab when Moonlight feigns to be shocked for a moment at her own cleverness before we also discover that the cabbie, Darkwater, is in on the whole secret as well. Marisi again confronts Moonlight's intent and her attempts at accessing or at assessing Marisi's capabilities. It's like this truly like triple gotcha. <laughs> it's just kind of a it's a crazy scene all around. Kind of. Yeah. But hear me out. What the fuck is Moraga going to (laughs) do? Like, she's told where to go, and then Marisi and Moonlight get in a cab, and then they go to that place, and then everybody fucking leaves, and no mention of Moraga after this. She's just going to get there, and no one's going to let her in? I think that they don't end up going to the same location, right? So they're going, I don't think they actually go to the Nightbridge district, correct? And they go to a different, more proper Oh, do they? And that's, I believe that's the ploy here, is that she's like, let's go there, and that's not it. But what makes you think, think, you think our safe house will have the maps you want? If that's the case, then, they would have operatives at that safe house that they could recruit. But these are the only three people within the city. No, it is that safe house, yeah. Moraga's gonna be like, what the fuck? It <laughs> that seems like a plot hole, unless it comes back up later. She does go to fetch her sister, which is what she does instead of heading directly there. Right. So her and her sister are going to be <laughs> like looking around, <laughs> trying to knock on the door. Does codenames go with? I forget. Yes, all I of them go. Oh, codenames go. They have no options because they're stretched so thin in this area. Mm-hmm. yeah so i guess to your point like sure <laughs> <laughs> like this is given like this information is given to her out of like mm-hmm. compassion because of the desperation of like she has nowhere to go right so like it's it's a lifeline for her yeah and one given begrudgingly by moonlight it definitely is meant to be a lifeline so it is kind of sad that it ends up being that she's directed to the same location and uh, question mark (laughs) (laughs) well we'll see we'll see i mean who knows you don't know where moraga might be going she might be okay says someone's not gonna come back Mm -hmm. you know sure (laughs) hope so for moraga's sake maybe she's intercepted in secret history i'm just kidding maybe yeah critter history Secret, secreter history to more secret dish, secretish history, mostly a secret, but kind of obvious, irrelevant history, <laughs> irrelevant history. But what do you make of the the sort of gambit that they find themselves in with the the sort of consistent sort of catches that they find themselves in while they're in the cab? What do you mean by catches? Well, like the idea that like. Marisi is like, we'll go to the Moonlight District and we'll go back to your place and we'll talk with whoever's there because you probably have maps. I know you have maps. And then her and then Moonlight being like, that's clever. And but then it's what's her name is the dark water is the cab driver being another member of the group. I mean, it it's fun. It's very yeah. fun reveals. And I don't think necessarily planned. Sure. 
if it was, I feel like there would have been a more clean plan for Moraga. So but you're I saying that you don't think that it was a, a thing that Moonlight let on? No, I don't think so. Mm. Unless, unless, like, I just don't understand why you would give her the address and then just fuck off. There's this, there is a genuine thought here that I do want to bring up. <laughs> that is, does Dawn, Night Dawn, Darkwater, Darkwater, stay there and then wait for Moraga to show up, you know? Or, like, maybe stay in the car and then pick her up? She was, she was sent with her, with them too, right? <coughs> or no, it wasn't. What I mean Darkwater. is later, she's not a part of the, the trio that heads out. You're right. Yeah. Then why is so it, the why, why do they people. say they're the only three agents? Well, available. Maybe that's because they're leaving Darkwater back at the place. Okay, maybe. Yeah, Darkwater's aware of the situation at the very least. I'm going to put my faith in Darkwater. That's all right. Cool. Down with that. But I think Marisy genuinely pulled one over on them. Like I, I think it mm. was a genuine shock, clever move by her. And maybe she intended to bring her there anyway, but didn't. Didn't expect Marisy to take the lead. Sure. In directing the cab. That makes sense to me. I can I can understand that. Mm-hmm. Like same result, but just more chops to Marisy. Yeah. I totally get that. But I mean, again, I do want to bring up at the very least that this is specified again this whole process for moonlight has kind of been an audition in its own right right even if she's going to be led into this group that we later find out is named the ghost bloods it it gives us this little hint to her own past that she's been involved with the fate of empires and there's some of this give and take of information that's been continually happening over the course of the story Mm -hmm. i love that marisi has this little rip back into her there i i want to ask do you think that marisi this i i think this is a prediction is gonna bite and join yeah yeah I think she is, against all odds, she seems very faithful, and she seems very tied to her survivorist faith, which I feel like is something that I would have expected to get kind of washed out of her as she's been changing as a constable and and becoming less idealistic about laws and about her feelings on things like it it feels like her faith would have been something to falter okay but it hasn't and i i think for that reason she's going to have a very strong desire to join this group being headed by kelsier I mean, I think that makes sense to me, right? Like she, Mm -hmm. especially in the reaction that we get later, this may be a little bit early to ask this question, but you know, I I think that it's a fair one at the very least because she's teased constantly throughout most of the previous weeks being like, are you going to join our spoil organization? And now we start to get the more concrete stuff going into the rest of this. And I don't think this means that she drops being a constable. Like, I, I think she joins in such a capacity where she still does her J job. But, like, funnels information on specific investigations into the, the ghost bloods and from the ghost bloods into the, uh, the policing force. Like, I, I think she works both sides of that. Okay. All right. Fun, fun, fun. 
So before the chapter ends, after this fun discussion in the car, we also find out that the survivor himself is who Moonlight's mentor is and that it might be time for a call. Ah, shit. Ah, shit. Ah, shit. Kelsier, yo. Yeah. Or maybe Kelsier. Maybe Spook. Maybe spook. I'm still, I mean, I'm probably Kelsier, spook, though. We, I mean, we, it's, we're, it's we're Kelsier, pretty... but I think he's Spook's body. Yeah. I'm, I'm still of the opinion... We'll talk about it when we get there. We'll yeah. talk about it when we get there. Yeah. <laughs> cool. All right. With that, let's go into chapter 37. So I don't really have a good way of approaching this. This I When I wrote the note for this, I couldn't find a way to make it a concrete full thought. So I just I'm going to kind of explode for a moment because I love the way that this chapter kicks off with Wayne reading a book that kind of tackles the idea of a butterfly effect and the planet of the apes simultaneously with the lions taking over. And there's just this sort of complex thought here that I really enjoy. He's got this entire rumination on the like concept of storytelling itself. And it's, it's so interesting and incredibly important and fascinating part of the character. And I think of Brandon's impression of the character to some degree, right? But it, it it's not that it rubs me the wrong way. I'm just interested in your insight on the thought here of like Wayne is is this broken character in a, in a bunch of different ways as we learn and understand like he's not he there, there's something fundamentally wrong with him from the beginning I mean with losing his family members with being raised on the street with the murder and the way that that's impacted his life and I, and so there's this impression that when he reads something that he finds more enjoyable because it has cussing or no shirts or other things like that and it gets spicier that there's something more distinctly wrong with him and so this impression of like dirty violent things that depict the world in the way that it is versus the natural goodness in people and stories feels kind of directly combative in storytelling style to writers that I know that Brandon appreciates such as like George R R Martin and it just to me it kind of feels like he's talking a little bit about storytelling preferences of people to some degree i'm not i don't i'm not going to put words in the man's mouth or anything like that but there's an interesting kind of line <laughs> there that i think is worth discussing i don't think there's anything definitive that we can take away but i don't know i just like really latched in to this concept that he's talking about right away here with this book and sort of the impressions that it gives me on storytelling based on wayne's broken perspective and what he looks for in stories so I I feel like Wayne, I felt like the highlight of this section was, was truly the commentary about why do we focus on going back in time and making a small change and seeing the effects like in, in the holy, like almost naively optimistic way that you I wouldn't have expected to see you from Wayne, but kind of makes sense when you think about it. He's wondering why we don't just try to make the good outcomes happen now. Like that, mm-hmm. that it's a very deep thought. And I feel like the, the surface level things that you were bringing up about the cussing and like those stories, like he still appreciated the stories that involved this time travel thing that didn't have the cussing. He just thought that the mm-hmm. ones with cussing were better. Right. Like, right. Yeah. Um, I, I felt like that wasn't the primary point of, of this little story analog. Bit. Yeah. Yeah. Sure. So like we, we know a lot of the flaws of Wayne 
and and where his character originated from and like and what what has impacted him and what has formed him into the person that he is and i i know the that conversation about the multiverse of madness that like has graded on you like horribly <laughs> is coming into play here and we won't rehash that like you can you can go back and listen if you want to but has Branderson actually out of out of story talked about Wayne's character being fundamentally broken. Yeah, I mean, I, I think that the reason so just to say, I don't think that this perspective relates to the multiverse of madness thing. I want to extract that from the conversation because I don't okay. think it circles okay. back quite on that to that degree. So I don't want to try to connect those two things because I don't think they do realistically. That has a lot more to do with thoughts on what makes a character capable of being forgiven or redeemed in different contexts and sort of the enjoyment therein that's the that's the idea it's not whether it's also not whether or not a character is capable of redemption it's the ability to enjoy a story like that so i want to i want to separate that part of the conversation out of it and instead okay. focus in on the other part which is what you were saying about has has brain said that ween is broken and yeah he he has pretty pretty explicitly said that the only way that like Wayne is fundamentally broken. And a lot of this this sort of points came from before this book was published. So the discussion spawned. And as such, I think that's why we get a lot more Wayne backstory here. I think that's why the prologue takes place in his perspective is to ensure that we can see like how busted he's been for so long. And I, I think that we've talked about it, too, that like part of Wayne's brokenness to some degree is that after being shaped into a kind of tool for wax, he didn't shift forms again. He wasn't moved or changed in any other way. Yeah. He waxed used him. And so he never really had to adapt to change. He was, he was used to the end. It was, we can laugh at Wayne. We can do this. That's just how he jokes as opposed to trying to improve him. Like the conversation we had, I think even in episode one that Marisi has and begins to kind of break those things down or we see maybe six years of that sort of, back and forth and how Wayne's changed a little bit. Not completely, of course, but the way that that's sort of adapted over time. And so I think we get this picture of Wayne being a broken person. And that's why I find it interesting that Brandon has talked about that kind of explicitly in the book has made it very clear that like Wayne is Wayne has a very fractured life and like is has lacked a parent for better or worse, like to any degree has only ever had partners. And so he's kind of in a tough spot but the the question therein is like that intertextual conversation because we know that wayne is broken is there anything that we can surmise about brandon's opinion about people who read these other types of books like and that's that's kind of where i was going with that if that makes sense yes this is word vomit for the most part no but, i i get it know. and i agree but at the same time he enjoys the books that don't include those he also does yes right yeah and i i think it just kind of he sees himself in this story so he likes this one better to a certain okay. degree so yeah the answer nothing to extract about brandon's overall opinion on I, different I, forms of fiction i didn't get that I, it, okay it felt mostly like that taste section of it felt mostly tailored towards playing into Wayne's inner monologue and how he seems to really go through a stream of consciousness. 
mm-hmm. a lot of the times when when we're in his perspective. So it just kind of felt like it matched his voice to talk about this story and then compare it to that story. And that story was similar, but it had even more cussing. And I liked that better. Mm-hmm. Like it just felt like his voice as opposed to like I'm sure I'm sure there's commentary sprinkled within that, but it didn't feel like the primary driving thing yeah to me at least and there's something to be said about like wayne's juvenile sort of existence right and even as someone who's mid 30 late 30s i think sort of the juvenile way with which he approaches life and still being kind of trapped in that you know i think colloquially at this point we'd call him a man child which makes a degree of sense yeah we Uh, could also tie it back to the conversation about alamancer jack and yeah, I can read, but I can, I'm dumb. So I can only read dumb things. Like we could, we could try to make a parallel there to this if we wanted to. Yeah. That makes sense. And, and like his enjoyment of the stories, right? That, that makes sense. So, you know, letting Telson go being, you know, kind of escape is an interesting point. I think here on the whole, there's also this commentary that comes in about like tying ropes and things like that. And we find out that Wayne's totally into bondage with Milan. And it's just sort of this like kinky moment where he also talks about like how it's not fun to bind her because she can just turn into a pile of goo. It's, it's funny. It's kind of messed yeah. up. <laughs> it's, I mean, it's, it's messed up. It's an interspecies relationship. That's mm-hmm. consenting yeah. human souls, right? Based on, human and not human only one human well there's an interesting question there because mistrates as a puddle right are human previously terrace correct they were turned into oh shit i forgot about that weren't they i i'm i'm like i'm making sure that i'm not crazy because i'm pretty sure yeah that they have some lineage with humanity at the very least we're Several hundred years removed, but or all of the spiritual lineage, yeah, were terracemen, but we don't Uh, know necessarily first generation. Yeah, well, the first generation. Yeah, they they were originally terracemen. I don't think we necessarily know if they are all of the original mist rates as well. Oh no, we do. That oh, is actually do. confirmed in the epigraph, yeah, of of Hero of Ages in in okay. s- chapter sixty eight. For those who are curious, all of the mistrates are in fact terrorist people, terrorist ferrochemists specifically. So fucked. Yeah, all which right. means so that the they, chondra, they are yeah. at the very least the soul. They were. Right? We can, they we can were argue human. Yeah, we They're we can human-ish. argue there's a human soul, right? Yeah, but yeah, okay. It still yeah. it still feels like it's interspecies, but it's not. It's different because it's a soul connection. Like, yeah. it's not like condoning animality or anything crazy like that. I don't even right. know if animality is the term. I don't want to think about it. Bestiality, Bestiality is the sexual term, but I think animality is the term. Well, this for is sex. For, yeah, that's fair, but it's not just <laughs> sex. <laughs> it's sex and ropes. We we are uh, describing <laughs> the sex stuff, so I guess you're right. <laughs> Fuck. All right, tangent. <laughs> but to get to the more st- more serious part of this line of questioning that of wax getting away from Telson and calling it an escape as opposed to letting her go. Mm -hmm. And this feels so very trust your gut. And 
I have come to like really kind of trust Wax's gut on things. Which is crazy. You trust a character's decisions? I that, that fucking is. know, man. Mm-hmm. I don't want to, but I do. I can't help it. it works the heart out. wants what the heart wants, Crossland. <laughs> okay. But like truly his gut has been a a very good source of decision making in the past. So I I can't fault him for it. And I think I agree with it. All right. The idea okay. that she was stalling and trying to hold him away from whatever was going on. I'm I'm down with that. All right. Cool. Thing. So as they continue to walk away from the scene, Hoyt is there again to pick them up. It's crazy that he's always here, despite in this circumstance, he's obviously informed by Wayne. Wayne says that they're going to need to pick up at this location roughly. And so like he's informed, he's not like stalking them or anything crazy, but there's just like the sheer number of appearances of Hoyt in this novel. That is fascinating comparatively and it does show that maybe he's had a more workmanlike relationship with wax over the past you know however many years six years at this point so yeah i'm still thrown by all of the interactions with hoyd and wax and how they fit together but i i'm going to try to move past that i thought Mm -hmm. i got an answer to it in the secret history or not secret history in the uh, secret project book got pulled out from under me like i i i almost texted you i had the answer and then it then it got thrown away so you'll get there when you get there but yeah to all you at home as well you'll i i think you'll understand what i mean mm-hmm. when you get to that point in that book sure but yeah hoid fucking hoid i'm curious about what he does in the meantime i'm curious about like where does he live? Does he have a little house in the ethereal plane? Like, does he sleep in this carriage? He moves unnaturally fast. Like, there's no way he gets there as a human. Like, we we know he can travel like Kelsier does. Like, that's fine. But how does he know where to be? And where does he sleep? Where is his bed? Where is his bed, Crossland? Where is Hoyd's bed? Mm-hmm. Does he sleep? He's got to sleep. I assume Hoyd sleeps. I don't know. Here's here's the thing. I assume that Hoyd sleeps. I don't know that he needs to sleep. I assume where Hoyd is, goes to bed. Where is his bed, Crossland? <laughs> <laughs> Poor P- PJ, for the record, is holding a knife to the camera because he wants to know more about Hoyd and is trapped in our current our current cycle of things. Yeah, I mean, there's there's a lot to a lot to say about Hoyd in general, but I, I feel like this is one of those interesting questions. The question to me at this point is if you are this consistent coachman, right, for Wax, we assume for the last six years, because we assume he hasn't left his employ, as far as we're aware, for any significant stint of time. Maybe he's had vacation time. Well he did. Okay. He had to have when he was the beggar. That was that like was day, after though. he was a coachman. Yeah, but that's like a day. <laughs> like, that's not that big of a deal. Okay. Curiouser and curiouser. But uh, if I read all of Brandon Sanderson's books today, mm-hmm. will I know where Hoyd sleeps? Some of the time. 
Well, I didn't want that answer. I wanted to go on a crusade <laughs> of where does Hoyd sleep? I wanted I to mean, make a hashtag for it. As as mentioned, <laughs> some of the time. <laughs> I think I think that's the best worst answer that you could get. <laughs> it's, like, it's not definitive, but there there is a couple of answers. <laughs> it's it's like yes, but still fuck you. <laughs> Basically. Kinda. Kind of sometimes. Yeah. Oh, my God. It's so, so good. So good. Yeah. To be fair, that was not the question that I thought that you were going to ask me. Did you think I was going to ask you? I thought you were going to ask me if there's an answer to the Hoyt Beggar thing, Is which there? I will not be providing an answer. Fuck. Why would you even bring that up then? <laughs> I thought you were going to bring it up. I thought it was your thing. No, I'm just so convinced that it question. was forgotten and I'm mad about it. Sure. Okay. Okay, so I have to like maybe reinstate my like faith in Branderson on Hoyd. I'm not in charge of your feelings. You kind of are though. You choose what I read. <laughs> <laughs> oh man. There, there, <laughs> there is like a distinct reason that people generally recommend reading the Cosmere in like the vaguest chronological release order with some adjustments for things and this is definitely one of them which is so funny because it's like a side explanation to an explanation that like isn't necessary but would at the very least make you go like all right i know enough about that man to know what was going on in that moment or to assume i should say okay yeah instead here you are trapped in my cycle you know it's gonna be really funny when we eventually do get to stormlight you're not going to remember any of this shit. No, it's I won't. Be very I'll, funny. I won't remember any of this. <laughs> BJ does a full Cosmere reread just for Hoyd conspiracy theories going into Stormlight. There are so many things that I was mad about that mm-hmm. I've been like, I've come across it again. Mm-hmm. And I've talked to you. And you're like, oh, yeah, you had you had like beef with that. I'm like, I don't remember that at all. <laughs> I don't remember this being a thing. Yeah. I yeah. that's definitely the biggest beef that I remember you having with Era 2, I think in general, yeah. is the the how doesn't he recognize Hoyd beef. So Yeah, it's so fucking stupid. Yeah. Mm. Alright. So let's round out this chapter, shall we? They decide to head to visit Lord Gav Geve Introne, of course, uh, from the previous book, The Asshole, who was insulting Steris at that party. That was clearly a set party. Wayne's blasphemy bit, I think, is very funny about like him in turn, like he blasphemies and so he has more to make up to God and so he does more. And there's just this fun interaction in combination with godliness. But it also, as he talks about drinking, being blasphemy underpins the alcoholism that we've spoken about previously with his character Mm -hmm. and another facet of this very broken character that we've been talking about. Yeah, that's, that's great to see like more Mm -hmm. depth to this, like really, really serious side of this character that hasn't been explicitly laid out, but is very obvious and very clear and is becoming more and more clear as a fundamental part of of wayne is this dependence on alcohol and sort of a commentary on alcoholism in general and and how destructive it can be but also at the same time how it can be rationalized and and brushed aside as not a problem but this also really really highlights how 
tuned in, like how, how dialed in the humor of this book has been for Branderson. Like the humor is like razor sharp. It's super, super, super sharp. This goes back to the episode one, right? This is where I have to, in my own head, I have a tough time not giving credit to our editress on this. Book. Oh yeah. Um, I, I, I think that's gotta be at least a part of it. It could also be the feeling that you don't have to pull punches anymore and just feeling empowered by being able to write whatever, like you truly, the story that you want to tell as opposed to holding things back, I think is also a real thing. So it's either A or B, but I think that it would be tough to divorce A from B regardless. And the only way that I think you can really get the answer is by more closely comparing whatever he writes next in sequence and whether or not she edits it. Yeah. Yeah, that'd be... Who knows what order he writes all this shit in, though? I think he's probably pretty honest he's about it. Pretty transparent <laughs> about it, with the exception of these four secret novels. So at this point, I'm like, did you plan the thing? Anyway, we can't talk about that. <laughs> mm-hmm. But yeah, cool. So they make it to Marion Trone's mansion for the courteous and upper class looting. Yeah. So yeah, like, yeah. I, I just, yet another just hilarious conversation from Wayne. Right, right. And I love I love the way in which Michael Kramer plays with that in the moment. And it's it's so fun. It's one of those things where there are small things where you can add humor and there are sometimes parts that can like add a layer of confusion on on top. But this is just a perfect layer that just feels like it adds so much wonderful context to to the idea. Yeah. Yeah, it does. Mm -hmm. Ah, so cool. All right. Chapter 38. We go to Steris, and Steris has made her way onto this airship by going to Reddy, smart girl, of course, as always, likely having this contingency plan in her back pocket to make it through all that bureaucracy to begin with. Her workaround is truly a chef's kiss to me, but it also seems very interesting how Varlance isn't nearly hung up on her being there and this sort of decision to allow her into the room as Ada Wathwin is. What do you think of that whole portion of the interaction i wouldn't have expected anything less resourceful from steris yeah like hilarious to accept a single coin in payment so she can truthfully say that she's on ready's payroll mm-hmm. and and get into the conversation obviously at a wathwin feels real fishy but Truly, my read on her gets more and more muddy throughout this section. Like I, I, I like the idea of her being a redundant figurehead within the set. Sure, that that's. I think Sarah said that she's clean. So, like, if she gets pinched for something, she doesn't actually have any information that can get out. But she's still like driving plans forward like i like that as an explanation but there are decisions that she makes later on and responses that she has later on that don't necessarily feel to jive like they don't seem to jive with that and maybe that's a sense of hey we're cornered and i can't expose myself so i have to go with the ant like i have to go with the plan that's set forward Based on the information we have, like, I don't know how do you cunning align? she is. Sure. Hmm? 
I was I was just going to say, do you align with Steris on her idea that she isn't a member of the set? I can't remember if that's in this chapter or the next. But it's, there's, it's there's some insight. All there. of it throughout this section, I can't remember mm-hmm. exactly what happens when. Yeah, I don't know. I feel like she is on the set's payroll, but I don't think she de- necessarily knows that. Hmm. Okay. So like, like a she's funded being, campaign without she's knowing being manipulated mean. by the set, but doesn't know that she's working for the set. Got it. Got it. So she's not a sequence or a cycle or. Right. I don't yeah. think she's part of the set. I think she mm-hmm. is, being is taking direction from them, but doesn't know it's them. Yeah. Okay. Fair enough. That makes sense. I, I realized that I said that this is on the ship. This is in the governor's room, the room where it happens, not the boat. Right. Uh, right. Right. Yeah. Yeah, important clarification. But yeah, yeah, she made it to the room where it happens. The room where it happens. Because yeah, uh, later on, when shit hits the fan, and they, they get make that. a joke about the pleasure cruise. Yeah, yeah, he, not a joke. He has to like cash well, in the the promise. Yes, he's like, it's can, kind can I of get played that? off as semi joke. Not but. though. It's they're, they're all sending for their families, and he's like, "Hey, can I get that ride down?" <laughs> It is a very, I'll, I'll say this about it. It is a very MCU joke. Like you That's can imagine, fair. you know what I mean? It's comedically like, I think timed. it is jokey. Yeah. Comedically timed, but he's not joking. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's what I meant. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. I agree with you. I love how Lady Hamadar is described and the way that cute is layered on top of this whole conversation. This is such an actually brilliant level of insight yeah. inside of this book. I was like. Great fucking point, Brandon. Like, that is absolutely something that people do all the time. And to to also have that inside of Sarah's perspective, for her to be the one that's so aware of that, was just lovely and makes so much sense. It was so well done. It was also kind of a dig at the same time. Oh, totally a dig. Yeah. Like, it was but, absolutely a burn. But the overall, like, commentary on it is true mm-hmm. and not something I had ever taken into consideration or ever thought about, but... I have no way to refute that. Like, that's absolutely what people do mm-hmm. when talking about, yeah. like, cute features on somebody. And it's just, they're like, it's the stereotypical flaw on somebody who's conventionally attractive. And that's what makes them cute. Like, that is, yeah. 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 That's absolutely commentary and absolutely reasoning for things. And, such a weird thing and i had never keyed it on that in such a particular way this is also really interesting and this gives some insight into how i do my notes generally i try to listen through the whole thing once and then i go back and when i do the physical i'll take like rough outlines of notes because i can't take as detailed of notes as i'd want to when i listen through and then i'll go through and reread the book and then pair up the notes and like buff them up and beast them up if i think it makes sense right this is one that i took last night while listening to the audiobook it didn't come back and fully correct because i liked the thought enough that i didn't feel like i needed to beef it up at all in the audiobook, it's Lady Hamondar. In the Kindle, it's Lady Hamondes. And oh, so there's just that slight difference between the two. I hadn't I remember that. backing up a couple of times to take that down. So interesting hmm. small shift. But I wanted to read the quote because we we're talking about it so affectionately that I feel like it makes sense to put it into context here for people. So it's the necessary course of action, Lady Hamondes said. She had a small gap between her front teeth of the sort men often described as cute, as if it were the reason for her beauty rather than her flawless skin, delicate features, and long lashes. 
Curious how minor flaws became cute when their bearer was also happened to be conventionally attractive. And ugh, it's just a brilliant observation, again, like we said. Yeah. So weird. So weird. So so well done, though. So Absolutely. did that last name get changed? In, I assume so. In all aspects? Or was this just a mistake? Generally... And this this is a real thing that happens. Last minute changes don't always make it into audiobooks because audiobooks have to be recorded much further ahead of time because of how much time it takes to actually get through the process. And they don't always have time to go back and correct each subsection. And I, if I remember correctly, I'm pretty sure Lost Metal was kind of under the wire for getting the okay. audiobook out on time. Often audiobooks used to come out after, long after a book did. Now, with the shift towards Audible and other platforms with audiobooks, they're starting to simultaneously launch over the last, I want to say it's like over the last half decade or so, really, is when that started to happen. But it used to not be a thing because they would wait for that final edit. And now they're doing it a little bit pre, not completely, but like there's some very small line edits and errors that you might find between copies and editions. Mm-hmm. That makes sense. And um, Kindles can be updated automatically. So if like you make a decision, it just uploads the version. You know, your EPUB copy can be changing consistently, technically. Hmm. As long as it connects with Amazon. But first edition collectors be mad. I mean, that's <laughs> why we got physicals at this one and signed. <laughs> but when do those yeah, come? I'd be curious. Like a couple- that would actually be what's up? Or a oh, fuck. I'm I'm thinking secret project. What Oh, that comes. So, if I remember correctly, we've been getting emails and updates about it. So this may have shifted by the time this episode is published. That's that's fine. It sounds like we probably (laughs) won't get the book closer to the end of the month to begin with, or we might get it with February's box just because of the printing delays and that crazy weather storm that happened in December delayed them like two weeks because of that crazy snowstorm in the Northwest, which Mm. is where they do the binding for the book so they were delayed further than expected but we're still going to get the hoid you didn't get the boxes did you right you just got the books the uh, i think i got well i i got like pins or something i think everyone gets the pins because they hit a certain milestone you get some things regardless with the, your I bought quarterly. the one that was like a 250 dollar like commitment pretty sure mine was 600 something Six. which is all of which is all of the boxes, so it's like 12 swag boxes. Oh, um, I think I got one box or something. I think you get a box with the book per quarter. So when you get your book that's box, what you is. get a thing, and so yep. you get like the companion stuff. If I remember correctly, that sounds right. And then there that's were some bonus throw-ins because of like how many how many uh, backers they hit on the Kickstarter. Yeah. I'm pretty sure uh, that's correct. Cut, cut, cut. You probably take this out. That's fine. Interrupts the flow, and I was mistaken yeah. in what we were talking about because I don't know why I was thinking about that. Yeah, but yeah, the autograph copy, and <laughs> I got it personalized. With, quote, I'm gonna right? need your hat. <laughs> so anyway, yeah. yeah. But yeah, there's there's a lot here. This is followed, this conversation is followed by the supposition that war is coming to them quickly. It's even started by Lady Hammondess. I, I love Starius's insight here and her ability to read into the reactions and plans of each of these individuals at the table. 
this is the enemy's plan in one way or another, and all that saber-rattling was really to lead to this moment of martial law to turn the state into a war zone, the state of Allendale, the city of Allendale, whichever way you want to look at it. Reddy begins to freak out when the thought of the draft is brought up, but Cyrus manages to nab attention by shouting and grabbing the room to talk and explain about thoughts in the city and what should be done. What were your thoughts on this this whole very incredibly tense and well-written political segment? Yeah. So it's it's tense, it's well written, but there's also a great deal of dramatic irony here. Because a couple chapters before this, we got the insight through through the the basement of the uh, the printing press. Like we got communication that implicated all three of the selected senators, I think, I think it's these same three senators that are on this small council as being a part of the set or in the set's employ in some way, right? I think it's the same three. Mm-hmm. So we get this like really intense dramatic irony of futility in arguing about this. Because we know that everything that she's saying is talking to this enemy she's talking about. Effectively. So, like, the whole conversation feels futile while we're reading it. And it's just such a fascinating headspace to be in while you're reading this. It's really, really weird. I liked it. It's dramatic. But it, it like it was depressing almost. I did love Steris's outburst about vomiting and having the <laughs> capability, like having yeah. medicine in her bag at all times, and like you wouldn't believe how frequently it's like a a valid Effective. course of action. Mm-hmm. Like I don't know. I I think but, that's a great great bit. I I do agree with you that I think that there is something. Almost, I would say it's like quasi futile because I think that the other thing that we're playing with here is a limited time clock. Like regardless of the two day estimation, that could be more, that could be less time than they actually have. And so how long does it take to get information from A to B between the cities? You know, we know that they don't have phones, but I mean, that's true. But when you're when you're talking about your enemy's intent mm-hmm. to your enemy. Effectively, oh, yeah. Yeah, there's that. Right. Yeah, like- for sure. <laughs> That's tough. It, it, the amount of Especially dramatic no irony really knows. changes based on how much they actually know. Right. So I guess at that point, it's not dramatic irony anymore if we don't know how much they know. But like we know that they're not aligned. We also Ellen. know that Steris doesn't or like that the enemy doesn't know that Steris assumes that the one person is the enemy. So she can also like m- be misfeeding information if she thought that That's that would fair. have an impact. You know what I mean? She's not, though. <laughs> right. I, I think that's my my like part of that statement to that degree. You're totally correct in saying she's not. Is that like how much information how much impact is that misfed information going to have anyway? Right. Is it even relevant because of the communication barrier that we were already talking about yeah that i think the transcends... biggest problem with having a player the set at the table is just the opposing opinion and the sway that that person has over the party pre-existing yeah that that transcends dramatic irony and gets into like subterfuge yeah you know? just general like, subterfuge like I, i'm just talking about like the information we have versus the information 
this character has is at odds. But ultimately, I think I think it kind of works out for the most part. Like she she made much more progress in this conversation than I expected her to. Mm-hmm. That makes sense. Cool. After making her case and supposing who the actual member of the set is at the table, she also calls out Gorgland, one of the constables in attendance, and is quickly revealed to be Tensoon, of whom provides her backup to the motivations she wants to present in front of these parties. What do you make of this reveal that Tensoon has been a constable here in the room? Not for the first time. It's even alluded to previously that there has been a Condra as a constable, and I confirm for you from a word of Brandon that that was, what's his name? Starts with a B, Breton, after he was killed in Alloy or Shadows. I think it was in Shadows, Tensoon is impersonating Breton at the end. I I suspected that at the end of Alloy. I I, I think you're mixing up the books because Alloy, he's not suspicious at all. It's that the the track record goes that Bleeder seems to have maybe killed Breton, replaced him, and then Tensoon is filling in in Shadows. I think that's a Shadows plotline, if I remember correctly. Maybe I'm wrong. It's it's God, before Bleeder. Sure? Because there's like check. commentary on how like how weird he's acting. Mm-hmm. It is. It's at the end of Alloy of Law. No, you're right. It is Alloy of Law. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Totally. And that is that is entirely what it is, right? Yeah. I love that this is all based on a stupid signing quote. And of course it really happened, but the the interesting quote from the 17th shard and from Brandon is that he was killed in an unrelated manner. <laughs> Fuck. <laughs> and Tensoon picked up his body and ran with it because Harmony said so. Oh man, yeah. what a <laughs> words of Brandon are <laughs> crazy but anyway point being is that it's it's alluded to heavier here as well Mm -hmm. you gotta love our good boy though Mm -hmm. our good boy yeah i do really appreciate the oh man you caught me energy that comes out of him when she like scooby-doo mask reveals him calls him out i i don't know yeah it's a fun conversation it's great it's it's totally like a <gasps> and there's there's a lot of respect though it, especially when we get into the final chapter of the week that is shown for Tensoon which is a shock compared to the last book in which there was much less res- or even earlier in this book where there was much less respect shown for the faceless immortals variously maybe it's yeah. more important because it's Tensoon but you know still there there is the weird subplot in the broadsheets regarding whether or not he was like discrediting the idea that he was a wolfhound. Yes. That we talked about last week. Yeah. Yeah. The, and it comes up again right. this week. Correct. In the broadsheet. In the broadsheet. Yeah. Which is so fucking in, like, weird. Isn't it? It's what, yeah. it's what makes me believe that Tensoon is, is like trying to address this and like play it down in some way make himself less brutal so that he can be a cuter pup or like i don't know he's he's got some vested interest in the idea of discontinuing the suny pups because he doesn't like the idea and then also you know trying to downplay maybe his own brutality a little bit because he's a nicer guy than a wolfhound so i guess maybe we'll talk about it at the end i realized that i didn't put the broadsheet on the back of this no you're totally no that's right. fine we'll talk about it at the end of the episode. yeah but it's the same guy the same chemist yeah the same professor Hmm? Well, the chem- professor. It, 
it's the same it's the same name as the as the guy that was no, killed. It's still not the same name. You said that last time. It's a very Fuck, similar. It name. sounds like the same, the same name, name every time I hear it. Correct. Yep. Tober and Tobar. Tober and Tobar. God damn it. But I forget I forgot I brought that up last week. Yeah. Dude, genuinely don't remember saying that last week. <laughs> right. Felt like a novel idea this week. <laughs> <laughs> it's it's okay i hate my we'll, we'll talk about that last week i really enjoy the the <laughs> accompanying did you hear what you just week. said what we'll talk we'll about, talk about we'll that talk last about week last week yeah it's probably accurate motherfucker <laughs> i'm sorry i was looking at it because i i hadn't even thought to talk about it and i forgot that i used it as the breaking point because it kind of made sense but yeah I'll, that said i hope that you at the very least appreciate the breaking point that I chose here, because I thought that it made more sense to end on the Steris perspective, especially considering what we get in this next chapter with Marisi and the way that they directly relate with each other. So yeah, I want to talk about totally. that, but I, I was like, man, this is a fine place to end in theory. If we had like another week to, to do this, I don't, that would be, I think a little bit too slow. I think we're covering this at a good pace, but yeah. Yeah. Okay. This chapter ends finally with like an information dump to some degree, about the bombs themselves, as well as a letter being delivered, the letter being delivered to begin with from Wax that we read at the at the beginning of chapter 43, giving us this little teaser of the weapon actually being developed and confirming a lot of the suspicions therein. I really, I really thought at the end of this, that was the whole message. Yeah. And I was like, my mind was reeling on like, how are they going to tear that apart? How are they going to do what they can to misinterpret it? But there's more context to it later as we find out, which is nice. Mm-hmm. Yeah, right. So, God, it's so cool. It's so cool. Especially this is why I like you can see like ending here and not jumping back to Sarah's perspective. But starting with Sarah's perspective next week would have felt like a cheat to some degree. Like it would have felt... I don't know, like a little bit of highway robbery because it's not like the letter is that much more dramatic than it is. But there's so much more meat to Steris in the next section, too, that it's just so much fun to highlight. So that's why I couldn't mm-hmm. avoid it. That's why we broke. That's why we did it. Mm-hmm.